Our next guest is Dr. Tiffany Manuel, or Dr. T, as she prefers to be called. She's the author of Backfires, Backpacks, and Bedtime Story, The Urgency to Build Public Will and Solve What is Ailing the United States. As you're about to hear, she is a dynamic speaker and is the president and CEO of The Case Made, an organization dedicated to helping leaders powerfully and intentionally make the case for systems change. She has worked with hundreds of passionate social change makers to build stronger communities that are more diverse, equitable, and inclusive. I first encountered Dr. T through a webinar that was hosted by Robert Wood Johnson Foundation a little over a year ago, sometime before the, the pandemic. And I was so taken by the combination of her, her passion enthusiasm, as well as the concrete deliverable steps that she outlined to actually get there, that I immediately ran out and picked up a copy of her book right after. When we were putting together the list of guests that we wanted to have on the first season of Story Matters, Dr. T topped the list. And I guarantee through this interview, she does not disappoint. Um, I took away a lot and learned a lot more, both personally and professionally, from Dr. T in this conversation. And I hope that you will, too. Dr. T, thank you so much for being on our show. It's actually a pretty, uh, I feel, prescient, uh, even auspicious that we're talking today, March 1st, which is the first day of Women's History Month. And uh, I shared with my 15-year-old daughter about your background, your profile, and that we would be talking today. And she was uh, very inspired, uh, as are uh, Josh and I. So uh, really, it's just wonderful to have you here to, to talk. Um, you know, online in uh, your material, you uh, talk about several people who have inspired you, um, including uh, Sojourner Truth, who uh, in 1828 became the first African-American woman to win a case against a white man to recover her son from slavery. And of course, she had only become free herself when she escaped with her daughter two years prior. Um, you know, as a woman leader, Dr. T, who, how have Sojourner and, and other leaders influenced you? Yeah. I, you know, it's interesting you say that because, you know, I think of how connected we are, both past and present, right? That everything that has come before is connected to what's happening in the present and everything that we are working on right now is deeply connected to the future that our children will inherit. And so when I think about folks like Sojourner Truth, who had to stand in the moment in the presence and power of what they knew would be justice, like that starting, they could kick starting that, you know, as a, as a part of their work. And, and I feel like there's kind of like the, the sort of, you know, like a relay race, right? That, mm. that Sojourner Truth and, and folks of the, in that time period ran the race for justice as far as they could. And then they passed the baton to the next group of folks. And I feel like they're those of us who, who inherited that baton and we're running as hard and fast as we can. And, and I have to say that one of the things that gives me a lot of hope for the future is I think there's just such an amazing group of young people right now who are already just, you know, ready for that baton, you know, right? Asking for the baton, like say, okay, we're ready to go. And, 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 you know, asking us old fogies, you know, as I get older in my life, you know, like, you know what, I'm, I'm exhausted. I'm going to run as far as I can go, but I am so ready to give you the baton. So when I think of folks like Sojourner Truth, I think about the legacy 
uh, not just of her, but folks like, you know, I was thinking yesterday for some odd reason, I was just thinking of Ruth Bader Ginsburg and just the credible mm-hmm. legacy, you know, that, that she um, is leaving for lots of folks, you know, who think about, you know, jurisprudence and how we, by virtue of the legal system, you know, argue for and uh, make the case there, right, for the yeah. justice that we know is coming. And I feel like it's coming. It's just, right, running that leg of the journey and what a legacy yeah. leaving for young, young people. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. Um, if you could share with us growing up, Dr. T, who are some others whom you felt um, that you wanted to take the baton from? Yeah. I, I you know, it's funny. I, I feel very connected to um, sort of everyday unsung heroes. There are many heroes that were mm. the sort of larger than life legends that you read about. And, but the, the folks who were just amazing heroes in my in my immediate world with just my family, like who was struggling mm-hmm. hard. I mean, I grew up in Detroit at a pretty tough time um, when Detroit was going through this kind of amazing transition, was moving from a place that was hustling. You know, mm-hmm. in the early 70s, Detroit was just like this amazing bundle of energy. You had Motown and, you know, all of that, the energy of the music and the factories right. were humming Ford and GM and Chrysler and everybody had a job and a brand new car every year because by virtue of working for the factories and a little wow. small little house that you could afford make sure with your factory job. Everything was humming. And then there was this point right about 1980 where all of that almost overnight kind of flipped over, right? Where the auto industry kind of started to go under and laying off folks and um, uh, drugs, especially crack, hit the hit our communities in a way that would, was just like an immediate challenge. Um, and a whole just series of things, right? To sort of transition of the social welfare system started to change and like pushing more people, removing this, the social safety net and those kinds of issues. And so I just remember like that complete transition. Um, and I just remember the sort of everyday heroes in my life, like saying, these there's huge macro challenges that are happening and you got to keep going. Like you got to get food on the table. You got to get kicked out the door to, to go to school. You got to make sure that kids have what they need. You got to bring some joy Right. Even in the middle of this craziness that's happening around you, you got to create community and 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 being able to just continue to do that without, you know, without disruption, without missing a beat. That that's incredible to live through that and come out on the other side, being able to take care of your family, your community. Those are the folks that I, I remember as heroes. And I just thought, wow, <laughs> I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm soaking all this up and hopefully being able yeah, to yeah. in the spirit of that relay race. Right. Right. Soaking it up so that I can pass it on to the next generation of folks. No, that's beautifully said, Dr. T. Uh, you mentioned um, how the ability to get a small home that you could afford even as a factory worker. And of course, affordable housing has been one of the main themes of your career to focus on. Um, were there some personal anecdotes, some hardship you saw um, related to that? And that's why it's become such a cornerstone of your work? Yeah, and, and it's really interesting. I, I kind of fell into affordable housing sort of later in my career, but it's become, it's increasingly become more central. And a part of the reason is because, you know, in my early development, housing was not a huge issue for folks in Detroit. You know, mm. but the, in Detroit, the factories, you know, the auto industry made sure that these cookie cutter houses, they made a billion of them. They just, right, they're all over Detroit. They, right, it didn't cost you a whole lot to get them. They didn't cost very much, you know, with $5,000 down, you could own a house. In fact, in my family, uh, most of the, at least the men in my family own multiple houses. And, you know, so that was oh, never okay. having a home in that sense was never a huge challenge. Um, but I think what has happened over the last 
20 years of my career has flipped that upside down. Um, now when you go, because of what's happened in the city of Detroit, like there's a lot of vacancy rate, a lot of blight, right? Because a lot of folks have left the city for right. other places when that only started to, you know, the economic kind of center of the city kind of hollowed out. It's It sent folks other places, which meant that it became a different kind of city. So you can get a house and a home in Detroit for relatively cheap. It's not hard in terms of affordability, but now the issues are, are different. It's safety. It is you know, how do you help investment continue to be in those communities? But what I saw later in life as, as the sort of housing market across the country, not just in Detroit, transition was the real need to think about the central importance of where you live as a, as a centering proposition. Um, there are many things that you can live without. There are many things that you can make changes to your budget, but you kind of don't get very far in life if you don't have a place to lay, lay your head at night. That's right. like, you know, That's right. and so that... The challenge of that, the kind of awesome responsibility that we have to make sure that folks have access to a decent place to lay their head at night has gotten much more difficult uh, and much more complex, um, I would say, in the last 20 or 30 years. And it's that that has slowly sort of brought me back to this more centralized conversation about housing and the central role that it plays in our health and well-being and our, you know, and our ability to just think, to have a, a space for mental clarity and health. I mean, mental health, right? All Absolutely. of that is wrapped up in a decent place to lay your head at night. And, and I don't think we have thought enough about that as a centering foundation in our, in our not just in our country, but in our culture. Um, and so a lot of my work is having people step back and think about that. It's, it's a great orientation. And it's, it's fascinating when you talked about kind of the corporate role that was played by the auto industry in terms of securing housing it made me think I've, I've done a lot of business in China and they would provide housing for their factory workers because it just made it easy. Now there was no ownership aspect of it. The factory owned the hostel where they stayed. And so I think this is a more advanced model where the um, corporations were helping with ownership. Um, but I, I think an important nuance there is the emphasis of how that, um, isn't a sustainable model and people need to take that on their own and kind of secure that on their own with government support, as you've been advocating for, to be sure that it's the best for everybody, the greater good for, for people who are, can, who can afford housing comfortably, um, you know, having that segment of our economy looked after with a place to rest their head at night, as you've said, um, is critically important. And that should be the, the, the strongest motivation. Um, I'd love to hear about your decision to go to the University of Chicago, what you studied there. And if at that point, public policy was something you knew you would uh, uh, move uh, move towards. Yeah. So so in keeping with, with this sort of thing that we're on, you know, I, I, I grew up in a, and like I said, in Detroit at a time when I, I witnessed like the city transition overnight. I mean, literally, it became a completely different place you know, from one that was fun and joyful and just full of life and energy to one that was a pretty scary place to be. Um, and so uh, when I when it was time to go to school, I, I really felt like I wanted to go to school at the, you know, the best institution I could, I could get into. Hmm. Um, and I, and I felt like my goal in that work was not so that I could get an education and do something great as a profession. I felt like I got to figure out what just happened. <laughs> like, because I got to figure out how to fix it because something just went awfully wrong. It went terribly wrong. And I, you know, and I, I felt a deep sense of responsibility to try to figure out how to fix it. Um, 
as it wasn't working right. It wasn't working in a way that benefited certainly my family and many of the families in Detroit. And so my pursuit of public policy was like, I got to, how did this happen? How do we undo it? What do we have to do? Um, And in that context, I really thought that like having more data was going to be the answer for that. Like I felt like if we could get enough data to show that when you invest in cities like Detroit and the power and capacity of the people who live there, that you could demonstrate right, all these incredible outcomes, not just that there's a financial return for those investments, but that there's a social return. Like people get healthier, people are, feel safe, people, <laughs> their kids go to college and do great things and we all benefit. And so I went to University of Chicago really seeking that, like I'm gonna figure out how to bring this incredible set of skills around data to shape a different conversation about what it means to support um, you know, resilient people. Yeah. Um, and I think, that, and, I, and that's happened. I mean, the, the amount of data that we now have access to, I mean, if you look at even stuff like what Rod Shetty is doing with data, I mean, it's just phenomenal what we're able to, what we know just by virtue of the data that we now have access to. And when you get somebody who's got this deep set of skills that can bring to the data, I mean, we can now predict, like based on your zip code and just a few other informa- you know, information points about you, we can basically predict your future, right? It's one of the reasons why, Today, if you go and you and you um, want to get a mortgage, you know, you go online, they ask for a few pieces of information and within like 20 seconds, they can give you a decision about whether or not you get money or not, because yeah. those models have become so predictive, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. That it's easy to do that. So the, the data has showed up. <laughs> the problem is the challenge we're looking at and what I write about in case making, the problem is the challenge really was never data, right? Right. Right. I thought it was. That's why I went and pursued. I got all, you know, work. I went to grad school, had a PhD in economic modeling. And, you know, I can do multi-level modeling and all these kind of, you know, thousand different kind of regressions, analysis and all this stuff. But that was never really the problem in the first place. And so now we are stuck with the challenge and the opportunity to make a stronger case for the just world that we know can exist. And that requires a different set of skills. Yeah. So it's really uh, execution, you feel, is um, the key. Is that the way to describe it? It's building public will. It's having people feel like they have a stake in the world that you are saying matters, right? If, you know, we have traditionally tried to sort of talk about what it means to invest in folks. And it's not that people don't, don't, don't think that investment occurs. They just are trying to figure out, like, how do I win when I invest in you? <laughs> it's us versus them, right. rather than conversation versus an understanding of our shared faith. Like when I win, you win and vice versa. And to go back to this early conversation when you were, t- we were talking about auto industry, I think that's a part of what broke down in the 80s that, right, and public policy folks will tell you this. There was a point in time in Detroit when the executives at GM, Ford, Chrysler, and everybody else knew that when, you know, when, or I would say even for regular people, you knew that when GM won, we all won, right? Because they yes, saw their yes. stake in our future. They built houses. They can, you know, contributed to the broader community. So we were on the. We had a stake in each other's success. But once, you know, the mode of production kind of changed, and you had, you could get, you know, workers from all over the rest of the world, and you're not beholden or anchored in a particular place. Ah, those companies stopped investing so much, right? And the folks who were local to those, to the at least the headquarters, was companies, and that broke down. And it, and what happened was. Uh, uh, <laughs> what was good for GM was not always good for, right, yes, everyday folks. Right, and that breakdown, right. right, is what we are continuing to see be reflected in, in the larger economy. It's like, 
you know, we don't see a shared fate in each other anymore. You win. I don't know if I win. If I win, you don't know if you win. Right. And unless we can restore that sense, we're stuck. Right. I mean, it seems uh, brilliantly clairvoyant on your part. And uh, I wonder if just it was intuition or just what you were seeing in front of you that led you to these conclusions and made you feel like this is the path. Or were were there maybe some case studies or examples where you saw it be highly successful other than, you know, the GM of the old, um, which kind of shifted, where you said, you know, when the public will is behind it, everybody's winning. Mm hmm. Yeah, and it's it's not even just that the, when the when the when everybody's behind it, but when people see their stake in each other, it results in a different conversation. And I think you can see that even in public policy, where you see, you know, folks were able to make a stronger case about a shared connectedness, getting people to see a sense of like why we ought to be partnering around these issues. Right. I think of it just an, just an example in the health space. A couple, I would say, probably about ten to fifteen years ago, a lot of the health foundations were they were struggling to help people understand. Uh, what we what we now know of as a social determinants of health, that about 80 percent of what makes somebody healthy, it's not what happens in a doctor's office. You can go there all day long. It's not going to make you any more healthier than. Right. Because most of what functions as your health happens outside where you live, your community, your connectedness, right, all those kinds of things, um, your access to fresh food, your access to healthy environments. And so almost all of our resources in the health space were going to what was happening in the doctor's office. And very little was happening in terms of community investments. And so if your goal is to improve health and, and reduce the cost, I would say, of, of health care or, you know, basically delivering health care, you won't find it in a doctor's office. So <laughs> and well so foundations were trying to figure out how to, how to do that. And so they began weaving together a narrative. They got a bunch of communications folks, folks who understand, I would say, case making at, at a kind of, at least at the most basic level at that time. To, to start this frame of talking about your zip code and why your zip code matter. The zip code will determine more of your health than your genetic code. And it forced people to grab like, well, what the hell is about, like, what is it about my, my zip code? Three, four, eight, is it the numbers? Like, what is it? And in asking that series of questions, it started a whole different kind of conversation. What is it about your zip code? Well, it's about your access to fresh food, the home you live in, the safety of the neighborhood. And I think over the last 10 years, it's allowed us to see richer investments in community than we were able in from the healthcare sector, right, than we saw in the past. Like right now, I think if you look at Kaiser and United Healthcare and a lot of these big health foundations, these um, health insurers, they're now funding affordable housing, they're funding fresh access to food, I mean, all kinds of things because they realize they can't reduce the cost of care unless they invest in community. Now that's just starting to have a make a transition, but that is huge. When you get them to see their stake, right? And what's happening in community, you can get those investment dollars to also follow. And we're watching that transition happening now, right? Which is really exciting. I think it's fantastic that Dr. T, you, you go to U of C, you know, with this puzzle that you have to solve that you've, you've lived, you can feel the puzzle that you're trying to unpack and you think, okay, you know, like, like, uh, you know, like you said, the, the data is the thing, regression analysis going to figure all of this out and unpack it, but you come out and you're like, whoa, okay. You know, this, this, that, that was only, uh, only a piece of it, right? There's a much larger story here. Um, and, and there's, and there's a much, so, so 
can you take us a little bit like you, you've, you've guided us through this journey, but like the next leg of it was really coming together and pulling together strategic case making. Right. And, and, you know, I, I think um, the reimagine how justice wins sort of walks through, you know, that vision um, that, that became the focus of, you know, the case made. Right. Uh, and, 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 could you give us a, our, our audience, and we'll include that in the, the, the show notes, but can you give our audience kind of like a, a synopsis of uh, an overview of that and then what that experience was for you in particular um, and how that led to the work that the incredible work that you're doing now? Yeah, so that that's a very good question. And I would say for me, you know, the acknowledgement that the, 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 th- the thinking that data would be the, the solve, right, for the challenges that we were facing, uh, sent me off to graduate school to kind of figure it out. And I come out of graduate school with a shiny minted PhD. I'm ready to take on the world. Um, and I, a number of different things. I went to teach at the University of North Carolina. So I'm teaching students. And then eventually I decide I want to go into the federal administration. So I go into, you know, under working under Secretary Le- Levitt at the Department for Health and um, uh, 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 my health and housing, Department of Health. And I'm thinking, you know, that all the, all these data chops we're doing, all this kind of complicated modeling of all these different social programs, we're going to be able to talk about the investment. And what happened was I went into that environment and all of the great strength of data that the you know, analysts were producing were was being poured into these documents that were just nonsensical. And those were the documents that were making it back to Congress. So every year we had to produce, I have colleagues that still, still at HHS today, that their primary responsibility is to put together a document every year. It was mandated by Congress called the Welfare Dependency like essentially book, right? The summary of all the ways in which Americans were dependent on social programs. So you'd have welfare and food stamps and blah, 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 but only those kinds of programs. And so like, if, <laughs> if your goal is to show the value of those programs, you don't start with a frame around people being dependent. And you don't say the only folks who are dependent are the folks who are dependent at the, you know, if you think about who's dependent on government, it's all of us, right? It's the, you know, all of our mortgages are backed by the government. Like all of the, you know, our trash gets picked up every day by government. You think about all of these different ways in which we are deeply dependent in some way, shape or form on a government that delivers a basket of goods or services. And yet the folks who are, are pulled out of that for deeper examination are the folks who are probably actually getting the least amount of the resources, but they're being highlighted in this report. And that's mandated by Congress. Wasn't like we were able to freely produce, right, whatever we thought was being helpful. And so I think from that environment, it just, it stuck with me that like, this is not working, that this data is, is as rich as it is, is being poured into a set of frameworks that on the doorstep is dead on arrival. <laughs> like, you give me a report that says, you know, welfare dependency is like, you know, who's, who, Who's leading into that? Like, yes, I want to figure out how we can. You know. How can we make more dependence? Exactly. Let's figure it out. Right? It just like it, it was not. It was not helpful. So I left there and I went to do a lot of deep work with a couple of organizations to think about the framing of issues. How are we? How are we showing up? Right with a framework that allows folks to see the value of what we're bringing and the value of even that data. Um, and, this, and, and the good news, as I would say, what shows up as, as case making is there's a lot of great social science about how you help people to lean forward when things are hard. Right. right? right. And we just, I think, in the in the social justice space have not really been present to that. We haven't, you know, invested a lot in what that research suggests and how we can be deeply embedding that in our practice. 
And so my work at The Case Made is really about bringing all that good social science to social justice advocates to learn how to do this. If you want folks to show up for issues of racial equity, if you want folks to show up for issues of affordable housing or education, if you're taking the same old tired data out about how many people are poor and how many folks don't have this and have the racial wealth gap, it just doesn't motivate a whole lot of people to lean forward. And so our opportunity and responsibility is to figure out, to think through like how you do that. How does it, how do you do that? There's a great, a great quote that sometimes I often use by Desmond Tutu. And he says, listen, don't, don't raise your voice. He was talking about this during the apartheid era and after apartheid had ended and they were having these conversations about what to do next in South Africa. And people were fighting and, you know, going back and forth. And he said, wait, 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 wait. We could fight about this forever. Don't raise your voice, improve your argument. Let's improve the way we're talking about the future that we want. That's how we get, that's how we win. You're not going to shame anybody, right? Into doing the right thing, right? Right. People are going to lean into it because they see a stake in it. They see themselves in it, right? We win by having people see themselves in the solutions, right? Not by shaming them into like, you know, whatever it is we think is the is the right direction. Yeah. And I love how you have that on your video for your website. I get caught my attention as well. Brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. So, so can you, would you mind kind of unpacking for us, like the, the methodology, the approach that you've sort of developed this sort of 10 stage strategic, uh, uh, approach to case making, that really, I mean, that it's, it's fascinating, Dr. T to actually hear like your story, because you see sort of the evolution of all of your thinking in your life experience, you know, and it's just fantastic to actually hear kind of beat for beat, you know, um, how, how, how it sort of evolved in this way. Yeah. Yeah. So, so being, so being the good, the good little social scientist that I am, it's like, (laughs) you know, a lot of opportunity of reflection of study, of figuring out like what can you pull out right about that we know from social science it helps us to understand how to do that and so what you see is usually what I talk about there there I would say there are lots of things that I think social science offers us in terms of helping us understand how to make a case a case for change but there are ten that are really extremely important and the things that I think most of us are, you know, in the social justice movement are missing mm-hmm. um, and so the first couple of those ones are things like you know, the first thing you talk about is not what you do. And even, you know, if you think about even Simon Sinek talks about this, right? And and start with why, right? He talks about the cognitive science behind that, right? People don't, they don't, they don't follow you because of what you do. They follow you because of why you do it. And so this notion about starting with a strong sense of why and why do we, right, together, us as a nation, us in the community, whatever the bigger we is, why we have a stake in that why, right? That's how you start that conversation, not just because it's interesting and poetic, but because the social science tells us that when you start there, you get people to lean forward, right? You get them to lean forward just enough to sort of say, hey, wait, what? <laughs> right? Um, and so, you know, as we talk about the principles, like that has to come first. Um, thinking a lot about, you know, so thinking a lot about from there, you know, naming the power of the moment, what we might call the strategic horizon is really important. That notion that, What's coming, the power of this moment is really important. That helps you get urgency in the conversation. If you don't get urgency in the conversation, you may have a great idea. I would say, yeah, let's think about that in 2035. 
<laughs> we'll come back to that. <laughs> we'll come back to that because we got stuff to do. We got COVID nineteen. We got an economy. So right. we have all this impressive, you know, important stuff to do, and you don't give me a sense of why your issue or your opportunity or your innovation is urgent and today. I, I would say great. Twenty thirty five. Let's uh, rain check. Oh, okay. <laughs> you know? so take care of all of this stuff. We'll get to that. <laughs> We're getting there. Yes. So, you know, naming the power of the moments, they listen, folks, there's they're the decisions that we make today. And this goes back to our, early, our earlier conversation. The decisions that we make today in the middle of this moment is going to shape everything about the moment that we hope our, our children will experience in the next generation. It's going to shape the landscape of the communities that we live in. It's going to reshape the demographics of our community. It's going to reshape the economic opportunities of everybody who comes out. That's why this moment is so important. We cannot wait to 2035 because we will have lost the moment to shape all that, right, all that we're talking about. So getting that urgency up front in the conversation, if you're trying to make a strong case, is critical. Otherwise, you just lost your audience to, to 2035. Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. um, I'll give you one more. I mean, there are, a lot, there are, there are, there are 10 of them. I don't know if you want me to walk you through all of them, but I would say one of the other ones that is really important is this notion of what I talk about in the book is the consequences of an action. Mm. of inaction. Sometimes I call it, just just say it, you tell people what they lose if they sit on the sidelines and they don't participate or they don't support you. Yeah. Tell me what I lose. This notion of loss aversion is the single dominating force in all of human decision-making, right? When folks, when you're asking people to make a decision about something, the single dominating force in that decision-making is what they think they'll lose if they lean forward. Tell me, so you got to tell folks, listen, if you don't lean in right now on this issue, we're going to lose whatever the power to shape the future of your for you know for your children. You're going to lose the opportunity to shape what happens in our whatever it is. Tell them what they lose if they don't lean forward and support your work. For for too many of us, I would say in the social justice space, we don't do that. And what happens is people think they lose more if they lean in because we're not navigating that conversation very very uh, specifically. So for so for example, affordable housing. They think if I lean into affordable housing, I'm going to lose the property values in my home because these folks are going to come. And then I may lose my, my view of the lake because you're going to try to build more density in my community. I'm going to lose that great parking space down at the mall because now I got more people. I'm going to lose, 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 lose. And so even if somebody agrees with affordable housing, I agree with, in theory, the concept of affordable housing, which is true. Most people do. When you ask me in a particular decision to support or not, I'm thinking about all the stuff I lose. And when I do that tally... If, I'm, if I feel like I'm losing more than I'm gaining, I'm not showing up to your party. I'm not. So our opportunity in case making early up front in that conversation, you got to get loss aversion on your, you know, back on the other side of the table. Hey, listen, if you don't lean into this conversation about affordable housing in this community, in a few months or a few years, we're going to look like San Francisco because we haven't done the work to plan for the growth that our city or our community is experiencing, people are going to come and without a place to stay, they're gonna be sleeping in their cars. We're gonna be stepping over people to get to the grocery store to take our kids to school or whatever that is, because we didn't plan for what the community needed, right? To house our people. So you can, you can say no to affordable housing today and then you'll be stepping over, right? Somebody in the middle of the street trying to get to the grocery store. Right, right, 
Let's talk about that. Once yeah. you set up that way, it's like, okay, wait a minute. So about that affordable, wait, wait, wait. wait, wait. <laughs> <laughs> right. Your bedroom. Um. I, I think, I think you know, let's, let's figure this out, right? And, then, and the good news is there are a thousand ways to solve for that, right? We don't have to have, right, a thousand ways to figure that out, right? You don't have to have a separate bedroom in your, own, in your house to do that. All kind of innovative ways to solve it. Our main tactic is to get people to lean forward, right, in the process of having us deliberate about what are the appropriate solutions for every community. What is, you know, what what is this community willing to do? What are we what are we working on that helps us to manage and plan for the future? So I won't go through the other ten, the other ten, but this notion about making a case is strategic work. It's not like you show up and say, hey, this is what we're doing. We're doing some affordable housing. It's really important. You don't want to have a place. (laughs) It's not. It just doesn't work, right? It just doesn't help anybody to do that. So I thank you for for sharing all of that. I would like if you could speak specifically to the value of story in your model, because that that actually gets one of your your 10 points. Yes. Um, if you could unpack that a little bit for, for our audiences, because I think, you know, and also I didn't even realize when, when you know, the, the show, our show is, is Story Matters, and you actually have like a very clever kind of um, phrasing around Story Matters. Uh, um, and, and, you know, I, I think it's uh, the, your motto is the when you are doing work that truly matters, your story matters, mm-hmm. <laughs> which I was like, oh, um, uh, yeah. Oh. But, Absolutely. Uh, but I would love to hear you know you speak specifically to kind of the value of stories and why why you know telling the story of us is so integral to you know you know these ten kind of case making strategies. Yeah, and I, I talk to folks about this all the time. The story of us is incredibly important if you're trying to make a case for something, for, because you know for most folks. Um, when you when you talk about whatever kind of issue it is, they do the calculation in their head about like, is this something relative to me? And so if I don't see myself reflected in your story, I'm not leaning forward. Right. So if you tell the story about affordable housing and people tell us this all the time, we do our community voice sessions. I'll say, well, no, that's not my issue. I, I brought my house 30 years ago. I've been in my house 30 years. I, you know, that might have been an issue for me 30 years ago when I was trying to buy my house. But I'm good. I'm, you know, I got to play. So, you know, talk to the people who are struggling to find, I I feel sorry for those folks. Go talk to them. And so there's no sense of relationship between a lot of these social issues, right? And the interconnectedness, I think that we talked about at the beginning of of our, our session. So the story of us is how you're putting average everyday people back in the story so they see themselves as part of it, right? So for example, in affordable housing, you yourself may not need affordable housing, but there are a whole lot of folks that your life depends on who deeply need affordable housing, right? Your lifestyle, right? right, Deeply requires the folks around you. So, you know, a lot of what I counsel the folks that I work with is to have people figure out what's their affordable housing story. You may not need it, but who else? And I'll give you just two examples, one for myself and one for um, uh, just another example of folks powerfully coming to that, the presence of that moment. For myself, I, I used to live in a community that was fairly affluent. It was getting more expensive and we were having a whole lot of affordable housing you know, issues. And I remember when my, um, my son, who was then at that time, probably about nine, he came to me and he's like, I don't want to go to karate anymore. And I said, what, what's the problem? Because like, Master Charlie, he's not there anymore. Master Charlie was this Irish guy 
them karate, like, and then my son would come home every day talking about Master Charlie, what Master Charlie said, and Master Charlie taught us this, and uh, okay. And Master Charlie said, well, Master Charlie left because, um, you know, his wife had died and he couldn't afford to stay, so he had to move. And mm. so he didn't, my son didn't want to go to master. He wouldn't want to go to karate anymore. So every day is coming home from school. He's not on him. I don't want to go to karate. He's complaining. And I needed that after school care for my son to be able to be the professional in my work that would, you know, make my work possible. And so I'm like, at the end of like two weeks, I'm like, oh my God, somebody please give master Charlie a place to live because I need master Charlie. Okay. <laughs> at this point. That's my, that's my affordable housing story. If Master Charlie needs affordable housing people because his kid is driving me crazy, yeah. right? Um, and you think about like all the people. We did this in Sonoma County in California. How many of the, especially some, a lot of the elderly folks are talking about being able to find a decent plumber or being able to find, right, home health aids or that it's hard, right, to, you know, because people can't afford to live there. And so when you start to get people in touch with those kinds of things, you may not need it, but telling a story of us, how all of us actually need affordable housing to live the lives that, that we have, then you start to have everybody have a story of affordable housing. And now it's a story about us and the way that people are empowered to tell that story. When they are empowered to tell that story, oh my gosh, then they get excited, right? Then they're willing to lean into it because now they have a way right, to interact with this issue in a way that's really powerful, that lends their voice to it, right? That is so powerful as part of case making. And so I counsel folks to do that all the time, like tell a bigger story. You got to tell a bigger story that people can see themselves in. And when they see themselves in the story, they're willing to lean forward. Yeah. Those are some amazing examples. Just a quick anecdote, if I may, um, the anecdotes you shared about the various cities and like Sonoma and other places have had problems. Um, my family's originally from India. I go back to Mumbai, uh, Bombay regularly. It always puzzled me that um, near a, a, a beautiful, large, high-rise building, there was a slum. And I began to investigate that more. Turns out what happens is that uh, the workers are brought in from the countryside and they're given a camp to, to stay at. You have some enterprising um, uh, fellow city dwellers who decide, well, they could use haircuts. So they set up a little barbershop. Oh, they could use tea. So they set up, set up a, a tea stall. And suddenly you have this community, like this is the non-approved kind of uh, camp or slum. Um, and then people just stay. And so, you know, a lot of people complain it's an eyesore, but I've now, since I've had that education, I point out like that wouldn't have been possible without this. And exactly. so, you know, right. urban planning was the failure here. Um, yes. And so that's the thing. Like, if you think that's an eyesore, here's our opportunity to get in front of it. You know that exactly. you're going to need to have a whole set of folks who are going to be industrious in all kinds of ways, who are going to be tasked with making sure that, right, whatever is the development there is best supported. So what do we need to make that happen? Let's not have it be an eyesore. Let's plan for it. Let's plan that it's exactly. great. Like invest in the community that you have, right? And yeah. then you get to be the, you get the benefit of, right, the, all, all the work that you know is going to take place there. And you've done it in a way that like makes everybody have a decent place to live. Exactly. Well said. Well, and, the, and, the, and the irony there, Asim, is like, you know, it's an eyesore that everybody is so reliant on. So it's like, it's an eyesore, but I still want my haircut. I still want my tea. I still want my, <laughs> like, okay, that's the eyesore, buddy. Like, <laughs> exactly. Wild. Yeah. 
I'm glad you're doing those like re-education moments because I think that's valuable. But one one of the things, Dr. T, I wanted to ask if you were familiar at all with uh, the whole communitarian thinking. Um, I've been reading, this is new to me. I've been reading a book by Whitney Phillips and I'm blanking on the name. I'll I'll include it in the show notes, but I don't want to, I don't want to abuse it. But uh, she, she talks about, um, uh, this, we, we need like a, a more ecological models for mm-hmm. how we talk about society, which is, I mean, I'm thinking of, of this book that I'm reading, um, as, as you're talking, because it, it is, she's, she says, you know, the, the, the most disadvantaged are always the ones who, who, who don't benefit, you know, from this, the, the systems the most. Like that's the, that's the irony. That's the disconnect. They're so reliant. You know, and, and it's like, oh, well, people are leeching off of the system. It's like, no, no, there's, it's, it's not like a, a, you know, like it's a symbiotic relationship, you know? And so she talks about like the, the need to start adopting more ecological frameworks and talking about, you know, using, using kind of like these ecological metaphors for reinforcing how we're all sort of interdependent and interrelated. Yes. And that's, that's just what it, that I wanted to share that with you. If you hadn't yes. read it, um, I'll send you that, the, the link to the book and stuff. It's, it's fantastic. And, and I just thought, I think of that in, in terms of your work as well, that it's, it's just so important. And the other thing that I wanted to, um, bring up is, you know, I, I've been having more and more and more conversations, you know, with, with the, the show that, uh, Asim and I are doing, but also just like, you know, conversations with, with, you know, clients or, or colleagues, um, about, uh, specifically about like mutual aid and the need for a, a narrative, a new narrative that speaks to, to, you know, uh, new values, uh, mutual aid values versus, you know, the, the, the typical, you know, the, the American myth of like the self-made person yes. or, you know, and so breaking away from all of these, like, like narratives with a big N, right. Like, like dominant public narratives and starting to figure out how we can start telling more community-based stories or story of community. Um, so I, I don't know. I, I, I wanted to, I wanted to set that up as a question for you, Dr. T. And then like, I sort of ended up on the soapbox. <laughs> I don't know. I'm getting nosebleeds from the height up here on the soapbox. So I don't know. Oh, so Josh, I, that is exactly right. In fact, I think that what you just talked about is exactly, I would say, core to case making. It is that, that exercise and having a different kind of narrative and proliferating that narrative so much that it gets to dominate, right? Not just the conversation, but the culture, right? right? We have a culture that is always sort of vacillating between issues of individualism and, and, and I would say communitarianism, both of which are important. And we, and we actually, as a, as a society, we hold both of these, right, in common. The challenge is we have, you know, sort of, you know, you know what I would call a for-profit media system that is constantly sort of lifting up one set versus, right, the other. And so, you know, and, and you know, so so our culture has become much more predominant in terms of these narratives and popular culture that are all about individualism, the the right, selfie, right. the self-made person, the, you know, the Kardashians on by showing you great amounts of wealth. And, you know, they're not they're not getting famous because they did this incredible work to help people. They're famous because they're wealthy and rich and experiencing that wealth, right, as an individualized 
you know, proposition. Right. And so we consume that as a culture. And the more we consume it, the more that becomes the way we think about how the world works. And some of the more community sort of, you know, minded, mutual aid kind of way that we're interdependent on each other gets kind of pushed down in favor of these other narratives. When we still hold both, but it, they get pushed down in favor of these others. And I think, you know, that that by virtue of that imbalance, it really hurts kind of our ability to do what we're talking about, which is to figure out how we take care of each other. Right. Because that's like taking care of each other is not the goal of individualized narrative. You don't take a selfie. Right. Because you're trying to take care of the you know, people in your community. You're taking a selfie because you want to project this image of look at me, look at the world I'm living in. And, you know, don't you wish you had that? Um, and the thing about it is, I think, you know, what is challenging, I think, about the way we have thought about that in, I would say, we as a culture is sort of one predominates the other. And there, and we think of those things as being at war. They're really not. There is a strong way in which, you know, the ability to recognize our individual talents and, and effort and, and grit and all of that is really important. Teaching that, understanding that, fostering that is important. It just has to get in balance with you know, the notion that we are interdependent and that we're here to take care of each other. And once those things are in balance, it gets easier, I think, to make some of the big, hard decisions that we have to make as a culture and as a nation. Um, so the opportunity and the challenge for us, I think, as social justice folks is to figure out how to, in the in, <laughs> is to balance some of those more community-minded narratives with right the conversation that is always dominant in terms of individualized wealth and prosperity. I tell folks, there's nothing wrong with wealth and prosperity. It's just got to be balanced with what we need for the for everybody else, right? There's, I mean, go go out and create some new thing, and like you know, go out and be Jeff Bezos rich. I'm not I'm, I'm not opposed to that as long as. We also have nationalized healthcare and we have a way for everybody to have a decent place to live, right? Those things are not in conflict. They just need to be balanced. Right. Awesome. Yeah, that was fantastic. Um, so I, I, I want to give, well, Asim, did you, did you have anything else that you wanted to? Given your experience and all that you see, I wonder if there are some like startups or other corporations that um, you think are doing a good job uh, in terms of incorporating the, the social impact of what they're doing. Um, you know, just to think about uh, from an investment standpoint or, or companies we could support in their enterprises, if there are some that come to mind. Yeah, I think there are a number. I think there are a number I could name, and I, I'm the kind of person who I, you know, invest in those companies personally. So I, I hesitate to name them because I, for, for fear that I, my own investment might be in conflict with right, the conversation. But what I will we've say, just disclosed, so it's noted. Full <laughs> <laughs> disclosure, right? You know, I think there are. I think there is. You know, there are a group of I would say companies who are embracing this notion of conscious capitalism. Yeah. Which is the idea that right that that balance is necessary. That if there's nothing wrong with a company and corporation, you know, paying its workforce what what you know well and also striving to be more profit. I mean, those things just have to be in balance. And there are and lots of companies that are starting to figure out what that requires and how to and to proliferate models for how to do that. So for those folks who are who want that conversation, I think that you know not as corporate social responsibility and not simply as, right, uh, you know, giving better benefits or whatever, but really thinking strategically about like, how do we have capitalism do what it's supposed to do, which is make us all better off, right? Not, right, enrich only, you know, uh, some folks over others or, or you know, 
use it to marginalize the voice and impact of other things. What I would say is that uh, in addition to that, there are a number of organizations that I would call social impact investors, um, which are growing in number um, and they're growing in terms of their voice because they recognize that there is a way in which those social returns that I talked about are deeply important, especially at this moment. Like capital can be a really important driver of those social returns. And we want to be able to be both getting a return for our financial investments, but also having that having that shape a wider variety of social returns. I just did a report with, um, in, in, in a combination or collaboration with an organization called CapShift. CapShift uh, is, is essentially is a little bit of a clearinghouse. Essentially, they pull together thousands of um, investments across the country that have deep social and financial returns that investors can, social impact investors can invest in. And they'll That's put together great. like personalized portfolios for those folks who, because they'll measure it. Like, you know, this is, you know, for investors who can take, um, who are, who can afford to take, you know, less of a financial return to get more of a social return, right? They can match right their, their portfolio and their risk appetite to the kinds of investments that, that get this kind of social return. We just help cap shift in that respect do um, a racial equity profile. So for all the investments that they have, you know, to what extent do they further issues of racial equity? So that is a part of a social return. And for investors who have an appetite for that, they're saying, listen, I want a financial return for my money, but I'm willing to take a slightly lower, right, a slightly lower yield in order to make sure that my investments really return also strong racial equity, right? They're looking at how they open doors potentially for folks who may not have had right opportunities in the past. And that, and they're being very thoughtful and intentional about their portfolios, right? What's my risk appetite? What kind of social return am I looking for? And they can match that really well. So I would just encourage folks who are really interested in the space, especially in investments to think about like, what's their appetite for that? Are you willing to forego a little bit of yield to get more of the social returns that we're talking about? Um, and, and can you collaborators, you know, talk to folks like CapShift who, who measure that, right? So, so you have a very specific yeah. understanding of like what you're getting back that, that encourages the just future that we all care about. And the good news is there are thousands of investments like that. I mean, it's not just yeah. like you got to invest in one or two things, but thousands of ways you can invest in ways that generate a social return that's really important, so... No, thank you so much for that. And I think to your baton comment earlier, I think the younger generations are more intrigued by this. Um, I'm a former venture capitalist. My daughter wants to launch a social impact fund. And so um, uh, we're... I told her, why do you have to wait to graduate college? Let's yeah. go right now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. That's exactly right. I, I, I'm so encouraged by the next generation. I think they are going to, I, I, just, I just feel like, you know, um, help us to accelerate by leaps and bounds, kind of the movement toward a more just future. It's going to take us, it's going to take them a minute to, to talk us old fogies out of our power. This is true. Yeah. <laughs> but when it's they working. do, I think we're <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Agreed. Thank you. So, Dr. T, do you, we want to give you the last word. So if there's anything that we haven't touched on or that you'd like to explore, um, we'd like to kind of give you the floor to, to do that and, and kind of share that. And also, you know, um, how, how our listeners can, can, you know, follow your work. Um, and continue following your work, any, any socials that you want to plug, um, any ways that, you know, 
people can can get in touch with you. And again, we'll put all of the stuff in the show notes as well. Sure. Happy to say that. Yeah. And so what I would say is, you know, um, as I think about this exercise of case making, you know, if we really are serious about having a just future, then we have to take the responsibility of making a stronger case for it. Um, I love a, this quote that Martin Luther King once said that, you know, a, a true leader uh, is not a finder of consensus, their molder of consensus. You have to go out and mold it. You gotta go, it's an activity, right? <laughs> right? Yeah. You, know, like you, walk, you walk down the street and you're like, oh, we're all agreed at this point. I mean, that that does that rarely happens, especially on some of the deep social problems that we're talking about solving. So it's our responsibility to go out and drive it. Um, and that takes work and it takes strategy. So a lot of what I do in my work, I've sort of dedicated my career to it, dedicated my organization. Um, to, to exactly that work, helping leaders figure out how to mold that consensus and make a strong case for the future that they say you want. And if it's worthy enough, right, if it's worthy enough for you to be pursuing and it's worthy enough to take the time to figure out how you tell stories of independence, of, of mutual shared stake, right, of how you tell stories of loss aversion that put it on the other side of the table so people see the benefit of it, right, of what you're trying to do and feel like they need to lean forward. Um, so for folks who are interested in that journey or part of that conversation, they can sort of, they can reach me at our, at my company's website at www.thecasemade.com, um, on all socials under Dr. Tiffany Manuel under Facebook and Twitter. And I love to engage with folks who are, uh, making a strong case, uh, for their work and really thinking strategically about that. But thanks for the opportunity to come on and share a little bit about all this case making work. Absolutely. Thanks for coming on and sharing all of this case. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, I feel uh, so much smarter than when we started. So <laughs> appreciate it's you. phenomenal work you're doing and can't thank you enough. Thank you. As always, thanks for listening. I'm Josh Grenowitz. I'm your host, along with Asim Geary. Story Matters would like to thank Achieve, Asim's regular podcast, for providing the platform to Story Matters Season 2. We'd also like to thank Jocelyn Salmaran, our extraordinary producer, for all of her research and reporting chops, without which none of these episodes would be possible. Solomon Collins for his editing expertise in making me sound smarter than I actually am. No small feat. And Kitty Overton, our advising producer and the impetus behind the original concept for Story Matters. We'd also like to thank Yasha Hoffman for generously providing our intro-outro music from his song Roots off of the album The Weather, which you can hear in its entirety on our website, along with show notes for every episode at storymatter.site.